I am Joe Garrity of the Close-Up Foundation, and welcome to Building Bridges. Since 1977, the Close-Up Foundation has provided a teacher's program for all educators that brought their students from across the nation to Washington, D.C. for a course on civic engagement and empowerment. Now, in an effort to stay in contact throughout the year, we're offering our Close-Up Teacher Program podcast, Building Bridges. Today on Building Bridges, we'll be talking about the history of the Monroe Doctrine, from President Monroe to the current day. We will highlight the creation of the Monroe Doctrine, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and U.S. relations with Central America in the 1980s. Joining us for today's discussion are Dr. Dan Wallace and Sante Mastriana. This session was recorded on December 4th, 2020. In our last podcast, we spoke about James Monroe and the era of good feelings. Now we're going to focus on the Monroe Doctrine in 1823 as the second major piece of foreign policy for a young nation that is still with us today. The first was given by President George Washington in his 1796 farewell address. Washington, from his own experience in war and understanding the political divide in the nation, according to alliances between Great Britain and France, stressed the nation's neutrality as best as possible with all foreign governments. Still honoring international treaties, but no entanglements with Europe. As former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger wrote in his 1994 book, Diplomacy, under the umbrella of the Monroe Doctrine, American could pursue policies which were not at all that different from the dreams of any European king expanding its commerce and influence, annexing territory in short, turning itself into a great power without being required to practice power politics. America's desire for expansion and its belief that it was a more pure and principled country than any in Europe never clashed. Since it did not regard its expansion as foreign policy, the United States could use its power to prevail over the Indians, over Mexico, in Texas, and to do so in good conscience. In a nutshell, the foreign policy of the United States was not to have a foreign policy. James Monroe, he's not on any of the money. So who is he? You know, James Monroe is really interesting personality, political person, and at the same time, has a great resume. And we'll take a quick glance at his resume. He was born in 1758 to Virginia plantation owners. He served in the Continental Army and in 1779 appointed as a colonel in the service of Virginia. Studied law with Thomas Jefferson after war and elected to the Continental Congress in 1783. Monroe served a short time in the Washington administration. In 1799 was elected governor of Virginia. President Jefferson sent him to Paris to negotiate the Louisiana Purchase afterwards, and 1803 to 1807 was the Minister of Great Britain. Lost a presidential election to James Madison that he really, really didn't take that seriously. That worked out. Became governor again, but accepted Secretary of State under Madison, and James Monroe becomes our fifth president in 1817 until 1825. And again, you can see this resume that he has, not only in domestic areas as far as being a governor, but also in foreign policy. Mm -hmm. 
For a possible future podcast, it needs to be said that Monroe was involved in establishment with the American Colonization Society of West Africa, with, with the West African nation of Liberia. And in 1822, whose capital was named after him, Monrovia. This was the recolonization of enslaved Africans in America. And make no mistake, President Monroe had first-hand experience with slavery. This colonization movement was not done not only with the backing of abolitionists, but for those who were slave owners, who had a fear, and, and we won't get into, into the numbers right now, mm -hmm. the numbers of slaves or enslaved people were so large, there was always a fear for their lives. There was fear of rebellion. And yeah. there's a historical account of this. So that's the reason why this was a major movement. When Monroe enters the presidency, We've heard about his background dealing with the Europeans, being a minister, being secretary of state. Makes sense that he would have kind of an internationalist mindset. So why does he find it necessary, or, or I guess I shouldn't say why does he, why, does, why is it seen as necessary to establish what will become the Monroe Doctrine? And can you tell us more about it? Yeah, and one other person that actually, the Monroe Doctrine, there's been a debate, so I'll just put it as a side note, that a lot of people give the credit for the Monroe Doctrine to John Quincy Adams. Mm -hmm. have said that Monroe, this debate will continue on, actually. I would say both gentlemen actually were looking at this whole new foreign policy that was needed in America. Because in 1815, the Holy Alliance was created in Europe by the Tsar of Russia, Alexander I, with its membership, of course, of Russia, Austria, Prussia, Great Britain, and France. And at the time, this is basically anybody who's anybody. These are the yes. great... Yeah, I like the way you put that. Is anybody, anybody, this is the great powers which are in Europe at the time. And this was the answer, and the, and the reason why they put this Holy Alliance together, because they had seen what happened to them in the past. You have the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the ens enslaved who were um, uprising in Haiti, who take over Haiti. So you have former slaves who are Black, of course, who, are who have taken over um, Haiti. Napoleonic Wars of 1803 to 1815. So their things representing the, the monarchies which were in power is that we'll never have this happen again. Mm -hmm. War. There's an end to it. And plus, again, they have interests of colonies which are in the Western Hemisphere and later on, and also influence in Africa of dividing that continent up. The plan mm -hmm. was to keep the monarchs, as I said, in power. The alliance flexed its muscles by putting down uprising in Spain and Italy. And Great Britain was maybe a member of this, but they got real shaky on this when they saw the brutal put-down uprising in Spain and Italy. So Great Britain started to kind of waver. They were trying to play games where, yes, I'm part of the Holy Alliance, but at the same time, we're keeping their links with the United States. They wanted to make sure they were very close to America. They were fearful. And they were fearful that any interest of colonies they have might be taken over by this holy alliance. So President James Monroe, and as seen as I'm going to refer to the John Quincy Adams and his writings also both, understood this lead to further influence and expansion in Americas, with colonies becoming independent throughout Latin America, then all of a sudden these monarchies would come back in and put these um, uprisings down and would have a foot in the region. Mm -hmm. Not want this. So as I early quoted Henry Kissinger, I also need to include former Jamaican Prime Minister Michael Manley to this conversation. And Michael Manley in his book talks about the doctrine was a blend of national self-interest, a realistic recognition 
of the status quo and a declaration of economic intent. In fact, Adams wrote frankly at the time that the U.S. intended to guarantee its commercial interests, but it was hardly in a position to take on the world, and so it indicated its acceptance of the status quo. The way things are, that's fine. Yet, underneath these political considerations lurked the ambition of a nation which already regarded itself as a traitor. So, and when I say traitor, my Brooklyn accent, T-R-A-D-E-R. <laughs> make, it, make it certain. So that was a genius. And I love what Michael Manley put it. Again, Prime Minister of Jamaica, coming from a perspective of the Caribbean politics and looking at it on, on a different uh, angle was the fact that the U.S. wanted to make sure that, look, you know what? Yeah, we're not that, they realized that we're not that strong militarily yet. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we're going to make sure there are no expansions of influence. Because again, you're looking at not only in, in a, and you know, of Central America and South America, you're also looking at the Russians and their influence in the Northwest Territory, in the Northwest mm -hmm. Territory of a young nation, and they'll push it even further through. So that's where the U.S. had to come up with this, I call its second major foreign policy of making sure. So the doctrine becomes a proclamation that any extension of European power to any portion of the hemisphere as dangerous to our peace and safety. Thus, the United States expands influences in, in commercial and uses this policy to this day. You are listening to Building Bridges. Joe, can you give us a brief primer on U.S.-Cuban relations over and kind of leading up to the Cuban Revolution? All right. Well, I'm not sure how brief it's going to be, but we'll go back to the, the Civil War era. Because uh, that's where I think it is a good starting point for, wow, that's the, <laughs> for our relationship. Really far back. Yeah, <laughs> we're going pretty far back. So the Cuban economy is actually very similar to the Confederate States. Um, it's dependent largely on European colonists, in this case from Spain, but an economy that's built on slave labor from Africa that's been there for centuries. Um, but they in Cuba are still bringing over slaves from Africa and from other Spanish colonies as well. So in fact, Jefferson Davis and other Confederate leaders were determined to add Cuba as a slave state to counter the North as, you know, because they're trying to add free states in the West. So Cuba, after the Civil War, after our Civil War, Cuba does not end the importation of slaves until 1874. They uh, slavery is legal until 1882, and many slaves, after they're emancipated in Cuba, do come to the United States. Now, you start getting that anti-Spanish, as more and more colonies in the New World are leaving, uh, leaving Spain, and, you know, we're really losing out all colonies in the Western Hemisphere, you get this anti-Spanish movement going. And Jose Marta is one of the leaders of that movement, and he's a He's a hero of the Cuban um, democracy movement. He's a Cuban poet, an artist, a journalist, and he travels widely throughout the world, and he sees what's going on in the rest of the Western Hemisphere. He even has a uh, newspaper column that appears in Cuba and in the United States. So he is really pushing the let's have a war with Spain for our independence movement. In fact, he takes on basically... 
a suicide mission to win the liberation from Spain in 1895, and he's a martyr of the cause. But he really becomes sort of this rallying cry. It's other revolutionaries begin to pick up his his mantle, and uh, they sneak out of the country sort of photographs of dissidents throughout Cuba that are being victims of the Spanish government's crackdown. So eventually they recruit Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst to their cause, and they could beat the the war drums like the best of them, and that's exactly what they do with the Spanish-American War. There's a steady beat of uh, protest and, you know, reasons why we should get involved um, in the, the liberation of Cuba. So McKinley is president at the time, and he's not very excited about sending American troops, but he does send massive amounts of arms. So eventually he gets talked into sending the USS Maine uh, to Havana to, to protect American property. And uh, there's a terrible incident, and both sides see this, uh, blame the other side, but there's a huge explosion on the Maine. 261 people out of the 355 on board are killed. And they're, you know, the Spanish government sees it as an, you know, this was an act of aggression, but they were not responsible for this bomb. And we, you know, say the Spanish blew up the boat and it just escalates the tension enormously. You know, that's, that's interesting because I think that the way that that's often presented when you learn about it in school, it's almost like an isolated incident. Right. Like we had a boat in Havana and, it just and something happened. <laughs> yes. and it makes a lot more sense when you learn that this is an ongoing thing. Yes. And it, it, when tension reaches that, that moment, you know, it, everything gets so heightened that anything can set it off, which is a good foreshadowing for what we're going to talk about with the Cuban Missile Crisis, because there are a lot of those parallels can be drawn. So anyway, so McKinley finally gives in, and he and he has a U.S. naval blockade, um, and but he still resisted to sending American troops because he didn't he didn't want to make that large of a commitment. Um, so we send some regular troops, but. He also agrees to allow this volunteer group to head over there and fight. So there's 125,000 volunteers known as the Rough Riders, led by none other than Teddy Roosevelt, who at the time had been assistant secretary of the Navy. This has always seemed especially insane to me. And yes. maybe we should have another episode where we talk more specifically about this. Yes. The idea that 125,000 volunteer people signed up to go fight a war is crazy. It's crazy. Absolutely. A war in Cuba, not even really directly affecting their lives in many ways, uh, especially at that point. Um, so, yes, Roosevelt gets the huge volunteer effort going and he is helped by none other than Thomas Edison, who does a documentary film on the Rough Riders, creating this sort of larger-than-life, you know, feel for, for Teddy Roosevelt and all his fellow volunteers there. The reality is they don't really play a major military role. The real victory over Spain is at sea. The U.S. fleet completely wipes out this brand new Spanish fleet. They had the best technology. They had everything going for them. The problem is it wasn't really war combat ready yet, you know, and they lacked enough coal. So these ships could go fast, but they didn't have enough coal to keep them going fast. And they didn't even have a lot of their guns ready to fight. So 
we pretty much wipe them out with very little problem. And that's sort of the decisive uh, moment there in, in Cuba. But does Cuba get its independence? No. They become a U.S. protectorate. So Cuba is not officially a U.S. colony, but very, very close to a colony. And some people would say it's just semantics. So in 1901, we finally reach a deal where we're going to withdraw, but we have some certain conditions. So and one of those conditions that many of you will be familiar with is Gitmo. So Guantanamo Bay, we have a, a base there in Guantanamo, which is pivotal. And the real reason they needed it was because we were starting to think about the Panama Canal and we wanted control over that region so we could protect ships coming through the Panama Canal. So Gitmo was essential. So we, we nailed down Gitmo and we also passed what is called the Platt Amendment, which basically says we can go into Cuba anytime we want with really any reason we want. Um, well, fortunately, neither of these things is ever going to come up ever again. No, it's, it's, it's <laughs> exactly. incredible to think that both of these, yes. the Gitmo, you know, getting Gitmo as a base and then Platt Amendment, are rooted in the Spanish-American War and yeah. yet play such a significant role moving forward. But you, anyway, continue. You've got to love history because it just keeps repeating itself um, with you know different nuances, different background, but but the same issues seem to come up over and over. So Teddy Roosevelt's giving his, now he's president of the United States, riding his fame from being a rough rider to some extent and, and then becoming vice president. And he takes over for McKinley when McKinley dies. But in 1904, he gives a State of the Union address and he builds upon the Monroe Doctrine in what would become known as the Roosevelt Corollary. He basically let it be known that any concerns or disputes that the European countries have in the Western Hemisphere had to be dealt with the, by the United States, not with the European powers directly. All right, so we are staking our claim, and he is building on the Monroe Doctrine, and he uses the Monroe Doctrine to, you know, to make this Roosevelt Corollary. So it's a direct response from the Venezuelan crisis in 1902 and 1903, but he is clearly building upon the victory in Cuba in the Spanish-American War because uh, Spain was really the last big colonial power Mm -hmm. in the Western Hemisphere. So in Havana, they build this huge monument to the the main sort of to remind the Cubans who won the war. Um, and then the U.S. companies really start to move in. And this is where they have a huge impact that goes beyond just, you know, a government impact. The companies move in, United Fruit in particular, and they turn this Cuban economy, especially the farm economy, which is pretty diverse at that point, And they basically turn it into a sugar economy. Almost all the plantations turn into exclusively sugar plantations. And there's a lot of money in it. So initially, it's great news. And people are fairly well paid, even though it's not equitably shared. They are paid enough that they actually bring people from neighboring countries. Even people from Spain who fought in the Spanish-American War come back to work you know, on, in the sugar plantations because they pay a relatively decent wage. Mm-hmm. Now, 
that continues right up through World War I where the Russians, you know, they basically lose their sugar farms and plantations. And so Cuba has kind of dominated the world. There's a shortage of sugar, so the price goes through the roof and the Cubans actually do quite well, but the price is a little bit too high. And that attracts uh, other countries to get involved in, in the sugar plantation work post World War One. Now, at this time, there's a gentleman, one of those people that came from Spain who actually fought in the Spanish-American War is a gentleman named Angel Castro. Yes, familiar name, right? Well, Castro comes over and he works uh, in the sugar plantations and he works for United Fruit and he actually marries the daughter of one of the top United Fruit managers. Now, Castro does very well. He winds up having five children with his wife. He gets divorced in 1922, and he has an affair with the cook in their home, and they have five children together, including two famous children, uh, Fidel and Raul Castro. All right, so they're illegitimate children of Angel Castro, and that plays a role because their relationship uh, is pretty icy at best. All right. So just to give you a sense, one of the slogans that many Cubans would talk about, without sugar, there is no country. That was sort of their belief. Everything was sugar and their success rided on sugar. So when the, you started getting all this competition from other countries, the price you know goes down because the supply has gone up and it really starts to cause a lot of tension. So you get Gerardo Machado wins the presidency in 1924, promising reform and diversification and to end that Platt Amendment so the U.S. couldn't just intervene at will. One of the first things Machado does is build highway, highway, highways to counter the American control of the railroads. So he is doing his best to sort of break out from the American dominance of the economy in Cuba. But the Great Depression hits. And when the Great Depression hits, what does Machado do? Instead of, you know, sharing power, maybe backing off, adapting, he digs his heels in. And you see this over and over in Latin America Mm -hmm. where your guy comes in as a reformer and he wants to do what the people want and he does that for a while, but then events change and he never wants to give up power. And that's exactly what Machado does. Digs his heels in and really becomes quite a dictatorial force, which sets up um, the the September 4th, 1933, when Batista comes to power in a coup. And he's really a military guy, but he has all the control. Yet another frequent pattern. Yes, another frequent pattern. If in doubt, you turn to the military. And that's what they do here with, uh, with Batista. And he, you know... Uh, picks a president that was uh, in, in Miami, he was living in exile in Miami, Ramon Grau, who initiates his own reforms, okay? So it, it's very interesting, but his reforms come too fast and too furious. But he does sign in 1934 a treaty with the United States guaranteeing that the U.S. will not intervene militarily in Cuba. So ending the Platt Amendment, finally. 
Problem solved, right? Problem solved, Perfect. exactly. Well, <laughs> Batista, you know, wears on, uh, you know, gets sick of, of Grau, and he starts to have a closer relationship with the United States. So Batista has basically appoints a president after a president after a president until 1940 when he says, the heck with it, I'm doing it. And he becomes president in 1940. The U.S. relationship with Batista has grown a lot closer because now they're producing arms. We were so far behind in the arms race leading up to World War II, the, uh, the Cubans play a big role in helping to rearm us. And that is very beneficial for Batista. So closer relationship in 44, he just, you know, he goes to Miami, he steps out of the presidency, Cuba's in a much better place, they have other presidents, but the mafia moves in in a big way. You have the post-World War II boom going on, the mafia sets up casinos in many parts of the world, Las Vegas gets developed at this point, but what's better about Cuba than Las Vegas, there's no American government there to enforce the laws quite as strictly as they do in the United States. So they set up these gigantic, beautiful casinos all along the coast of Cuba, and they rip people off big time. I mean, they don't even, you know, it's so stacked against the average better, it's, it's criminal, obviously. So, uh, but this actually, the Cubans love the hotels at first, and it's successful for a while, but then they're like, no, this is a raw deal. And Batista kind of comes back into power in 1952, and that's one of his great challenges, how to clean up this mess that the mafia has brought to, to Cuba. So what does he do? He, he brings in uh, Meyer Lansky. Mm. Yes, yes. And Meyer Lansky's first job is to enforce the rules at these casinos. They should all have at least a better shot for people to occasionally win. And just for the sake of our listeners, can you remind us who Meyer Lansky is? Meyer Lansky is basically a, a mafioso himself. Um, he, he winds up taking total control of all of Cuba for the mafia. All right. So if you wanted anything in, in Cuba, you went through Meyer Lansky. And he, he was one of the most pop, you know, powerful mafia figures um, ever in the history of the United States. And, and largely it comes from the power he gets uh, working here in Cuba. And, and Batista gives him the mandate, you are to enforce these rules by any means necessary. Uh, and Lansky is known for, yeah, really uh, basically torturing people <laughs> that, that stepped out of line. So it's really a tough, but a tough place to, to live and work. But on the other side, it is the island of the rich and powerful. Lansky made it a place that people wanted to come. And they felt like, you know what? We are going to get a fair deal like we do in Vegas. And they had shows and they had rich people coming from all over the globe. And Cuba becomes this incredible, thriving economy, uh, entertainment economy. Frank Sinatra is a regular in Havana. They talk about people in Miami Wealthier people in Miami, their kids' proms would be in, in wow. Cuba. You know, I mean, it's, it's that kind of thing. It's just crazy. But, you know, while but, but, well, Batista may have shared some of this money with wealthy landowners, he's not sharing it with 
the poor farmers or the union workers at these hotels. And there is resentment building up as they're doing a lot better, but the poor people are not. So one of these people that taps into that resentment is that son, one of the sons of, of uh, Angel Castro, Fidel. So Fidel has really resented his dad and he resented the company he worked for. And he basically is raised by his mother. So when he sees the opportunity in the 50s, he's out in rural Georgia, uh, rural Cuba, and he is, you know, speaking out, you know, holding rallies. Eventually, it becomes a guerrilla war effort and just lashing out wherever he can at the Batista regime. He doesn't have a lot of support. This is one thing that most people do not understand. He's got a few hundred people that are involved in his effort. But what Fidel is really good at, because he's not a great military figure, but he is great at the new technology, which is television. So win or lose, Fidel would be on the TV blasting about how they won. You know, it, it, and even if it was neutral, whatever, he, how they won and how brilliant it was and how many people supported him. And no matter what happened, every, you know, incident, he turned it into a victory and he gathered more support and more momentum. But still, no mention of being communist. And, <laughs> you know, that, that's way in the back burner right now. And he, you have the union workers in the city who are far from being communist, but they're pissed off at, at Batista and the way the unions are being treated. So he gets this coalition together, the July 26 coalition, and they basically take over the country. And they do it, the military falls almost under their own weight. And, you know, talking about familiar patterns, uh, this, is, this is yet another one. So you have a country that's being exploited by, largely by interests that don't even live in the country. Um, and the whole economy is being aligned to one way or the other. It's leaving a lot of people out. The seeds are kind of sown. We're going to see this pattern a lot throughout Latin America, but really throughout the post-colonial world in general. Um, but the nuances of how different movements take hold and who is successful and who isn't is really where the differences become clearest. So how does Castro manage to pull off this revolution? Yeah, as I was starting to say, he, he is outnumbered. I mean, when you're talking about... He does a great job out in the rural areas as far as winning over popular support because most of those people had it so rough they had no interest in, in really supporting Batista. But Batista wasn't all that concerned about those people. He was concerned about the people in the cities uh -huh. and you know working in these casinos and the big money um, and keeping the Americans happy. But it, you know in the 50s, the Americans were pretty happy with Cuba and there's a good relationship there. So that's not really an issue. But the union people really start to become powerful in the cities and at these casinos. And they're not happy at all because they're not reaping any of the benefits. And they're seeing people live, you know, very large lives mm -hmm. where they're living a very small life. And so there is a lot of resentment built up. So New Year's Day, you have Castro going across the country to Havana and basically... They're outnumbered tremendously. There's a lot of you know, military people in Havana, but they had no will to fight because of a huge mistake that 
Batista does is he does not pay his military well, which is a big mistake. And they basically just turn over their arms and let the let the rebels into the city. So dictatorship 101. You got to make sure that your military is paid. Exactly, or or at least they're afraid. But <laughs> yeah, so so Castro again still has not meant mentioned anything about being a communist at this point. But but the people with money when they take over, they flee. All the Cubans flee to uh, to southern Florida, Miami, and the mafia folks go back to to uh, living in the United States wherever they came from, New York or Las Vegas, etc. Um, and, you know, just to, to kind of bring things up to the contemporary, yeah. I mean, you want to talk about long-term effects. Yeah. I mean, we just had an election where the, yeah. the descendants of these people still yeah. live in Florida, form a huge contingent of the population there, specifically the Cuban population in Florida. And we look at what a huge impact that has on our elections to this yeah. day. And you don't really need to go any farther than realizing that a lot of what was talked about during this election cycle was trying to compare Joe Biden to Fidel Castro. Yeah. And it seems to have had an intended effect. I'm not sure, but that, that implication is still there. That's still a message that resonates, which is kind of staggering. It is. It's, it's it, the, the, the argument has a lot of legs mm-hmm. and, and it's, you know, it's been used, um, effectively by, by the Republican party in, in many elections, for the last several decades. And there is there is an element of truth for it because, you know, Castro does come in and eventually he does, you know, make his his message known that he clearly is a communist. Mm-hmm. And Richard Nixon actually is one of the first people that goes over and kind of looks at him and weighs in uh, because they were curious. Who is this guy, Fidel? Because when they take over Havana, the United States recognizes Cuba within a few days. They have no... Real problem. They're like, okay, next, you know, is he going to mess with what we got there? You know, so they weren't that loyal to Batista. Um, But Nixon, when he looked at him, he came back and he said, this guy's a communist. If he's not, he's so naive that he's just as bad as a communist Mm -hmm. to us. So he they start planning the Bay of Pigs, although it wasn't called that at that point. But they start planning this invasion of Cuba right then and there. It's an Eisenhower administration plan. Mm -hmm. In fact, Nixon is so confident he's going to win, they never even brief Kennedy on the existence of this plan. And when Kennedy wins the election, and this is another thing that resonates today in the transition, they don't tell him about the Bay of Pigs invasion plan. So it's not until actually he is president that they, they meet with Kennedy and they tell him about this plan to invade Cuba. Now, Kennedy is not thrilled about it, Um, not that he is a big supporter of Castro, but he does not want to, again, a message that keeps repeating, just like McKinley 100, you know, several decades before, uh, he doesn't want to cost American lives by invading Cuba. Mm -hmm. All right. So he says this is a Cuban operation and we will give, you know, support from the air. So it's a complete disaster. The Bay of Pigs invasion. And part of the problem is that Castro knew everything about it. There were so many leaks and he had so many people high up on the anti-Castro movement in the United States that he basically knew their plans as they were happening. And he meets them with overwhelming force. Kennedy never gives the support that he that they were hoping to get from the American government. 
and they are basically wiped out. And Kennedy is a, you know, is a new and young president and it's a huge embarrassment. Um, not a good way to start off his, his new young administration in April of 1961. So what does this do for Castro? Castro immediately says, okay, they want to invade me. I'm going to the Soviet Union. And he may have been going there anyway, but it expedited it. So by May 1st, just a couple of weeks after the Bay of Pigs, mm-hmm. he's over in Moscow and he's working on trade, trade deals with Moscow and, um, and some military deals as well, at least beginning the conversation. And he declares on May 1st, 1961, that Cuba is now a communist country. So he spells that out. The plantations are divided up and distributed among the poor. And now we have a communist country who is aligned with the Soviet Union 90 miles off the coast of Florida. So what are we going to do? Immediately, and Kennedy's also ticked off because of this embarrassment. So they hire the mafia to assassinate Castro. When you say they, you're saying... The United States government. Okay. (laughs) The United States... The CIA, somebody associated with the United States government, pays the mafia. The mafia takes the money, but never really has a serious plan to assassinate Castro. So the CIA comes up with plan after plan to assassinate Castro. They paid his former mistress to do it. And she backed out at the last moment, came close. She (laughs) met with him, but she couldn't do it. So, you know, they had several plans like this, but none of them work out. How do we move in from 1959, we recognize the sovereignty of the new Cuban government on an island 90 miles off our coast. How do we go from that situation? Cuba is not a major military power or anything. So how do we move from there to having a worldwide threat of nuclear holocaust in just a couple of years. It's, it's actually incredible when you look at this history. I mean, this is, we're basically enforcing the Monroe Doctrine, the Roosevelt Corollary. They're in our backyard. We're just trying to keep them in line. They're a relatively poor country. It's amazing that this leads us almost to a worldwide nuclear annihilation. And, and it comes incredibly close. So Kennedy, after giving up on these assassination attempts as, as a, actually a strategic way to get back at Cuba, he develops his plan called Operation Ortsak, which is Castro spelled backwards. Um, but anyway, so they have, <laughs> I, I know, some of this you just, you can't make this stuff up. It's not even an acronym? <laughs> no, no. So they have this full-scale war game in Puerto Rico in the spring of 1962. Now, Castro knows what's going on. So he's, it's scaring the hell out of him. So he goes to Khrushchev and says, all right, we need a military alliance, not just military aid, but an alliance. And the Soviets pick up on this big time. They create an alliance with Cuba modeled after the NATO alliance. So if you attack any of those countries, every other country has to attack in kind. Mm-hmm. So it was basically, if you attack Cuba, we're going to treat it like you're attacking the Soviet Union. So this escalates the tension dramatically. All right. So if you're going to do this, right, Khrushchev says, if we're going to treat you like part of the 
you know, the uh, Soviet Union, then we're going to bring missiles over. And so they bring missiles over starting in September of 1962. And it's a big job. You know, you have to build these missile silos. You're bringing the weapons all the way across from, you know, from, uh, from the Soviet Union, across the Atlantic Ocean. And, but they are really well along in the fall, October of 1962. All right, which really brings us to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is one of the most scary events of the entire 40-year history of the Cold War. It really, you could argue it's the climax of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. So it's, you have this 13-day sh- you know, showdown between the two world superpowers that are really on the brink of a nuclear war. Now, so just to go through how this all plays out, all right? October 14, 1962, the U.S. U-2 spy plane piloted by Richard, by Richard Heiser takes 100 photos of this newly built installation on the Cuban countryside, all right? They know something is up here. But that night in Washington, D.C., John Kennedy, who is part of this group that was known as the Georgetown Set, which included, you know, Kennedy and most of the most powerful people and influential people in government, in the media, in the intelligence community. They would have these regular suppers in Georgetown where they would discuss high level policy initiatives off the record. It was a chance for them to have free flowing discussion and a lot comes out of those meetings and they all kind of play off each other because you had Alan Dulles, who's the head of the CIA, you had Kennedy, you had reporters there. So reporters would leak stories. It was all manipulating each other to kind of, you know, get one up each other, but also for the good of the United States. They kind of all wanted the best. Um, So it was sort of the best and the brightest you know, with this little small government, at least the government on the side. And it was known as the Georgetown set. But anyway, so this night, one of the people that was part of the Georgetown set was Chip Boylan. Chip Boylan was the ambassador to the Soviet Union in the 1950s under Eisenhower. And Kennedy has just named him uh, ambassador to France. So he is about to leave on a two-week boat ship, uh, boat in a ride across the across the Atlantic to Paris to take over as U.S. ambassador to France. It sounds lovely. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's you know. <laughs> so Kennedy takes him aside in one of these meetings and the martinis are flowing because these are very social events. It's, you know, not usually where policy is actually being done, but you have the president of the United States there and he's just found out about these, these missiles in Cuba. He takes Boylan aside and he wants to get Boylan's read on Khrushchev. Would Khrushchev back down if this came to a nuclear standoff? And Boylan, arguing with Kennedy all night, but he basically believed that, you know, pushed, you know, if if he was pushed and it came to the brink of a nuclear war, Khrushchev would actually back down. Um, Kennedy begs Boylan to not go on on his trip the next day because he needed him to stay for the rest of the Cuban Missile Crisis to help him with this, you know, play out as it plays out over the next couple of weeks. Well, Boylan says, if I'm not on that ship tomorrow, the Russians are going to know 
that we have found out that something is up because there's a change in plans. So he convinces Kennedy that he has to go. So he's taking this, this ship across the Atlantic while this is all playing out in the Atlantic as, as we have the blockade that comes and the Soviet ships that move across the Atlantic. So right in the middle of that is our ambassador heading to, to France. So it's fascinating time. <laughs> and he also convinces Kennedy that Tommy Thompson's going to be taken over as ambassador to the Soviet Union and he'd be in really good hands. And just a great quote from Chip Boyle, and just to give you a sense of kind of plays to what we're talking about now, is one of his most famous quotes was, the two greatest lies in the English language are, champagne has no effect on me, and I understand the Russians. <laughs> so, so well, That's great. I'm yeah. glad that that guy says, no, don't worry about it. I'm <laughs> out of here. That's right. <laughs> so, I, you know, I may give you my read, but, you know, does anybody really understand the Russians? So, all right. So on the 15th, and besides Boylan heading to France, the CIA spots launchers and missiles and trucks, and they clearly indicate what they thought was happening there. There's missiles, and this is going to be a huge problem. So on the 16th, Kennedy meets with his team of advisors known as XCOM, and they discuss how they should respond. And Robert McNamara, who's the Secretary of Defense, presents his plans, the three options that they come up with. One, Diplomacy with Fidel Castro and Khrushchev. Okay, that's a good one. Uh Uh, Two, uh, naval quarantine of Cuba. Quarantine, not blockade. And that was, they argued about that for most of the day, but they came out with quarantine. What's funny is that right now the word quarantine is way more threatening. (laughs) I know. Times change. (laughs) It's true, exactly. So, uh, and then three, an air attack to destroy the missiles, which would kill thousands of Soviet personnel and probably trigger a Soviet counterattack on, you know, a target maybe like Berlin. But there's a lot of dis- different possible targets. And this, of course, is in the time of mutually assured destruction, where that could yes. mean the end of civilization. So. Yes. And this is before we had, like, you know, the, the red phone where we could talk. There, there was so much concern about miscommunication that could actually lead to this nuclear holocaust. So... Anyway, Kennedy rejects the attack and he favors the quarantine to buy some time, you know, to work out a, a you know, a removal of the of the missiles. OK, and they use quarantine uh, instead of blockade because blockade is considered an act of war. Mm. So they wanted anything that would not, uh, you know, be, be able to use as an act of war. So on October 22nd, in this dramatic 18 minute speech. JFK shocks the Americans by revealing this unmistakable evidence of this missile threat in Cuba. And he announces that the United States ships carrying weapons to reach Cuba and demanding that the Soviets withdraw their missiles. All right. And and meanwhile, the U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union delivers a letter from Kennedy to Khrushchev. And and basically, Kennedy says he's very, very concerned about a miscommunication and this is really where they start talking about having a direct line between the White House and Moscow. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do communicate. This, this is really diplomacy between our leaders, our two leaders. It's not, it, it's not down in the State Department. It's really at the highest level. So, so the American people know. The Soviets still don't know about it, okay? October 23rd, the Soviet people, not the leaders, mm-hmm. Um, so Khrushchev writes to JFK, you know, rebuffing his demand to remove the missiles. 
Um, he says they're only for defensive purposes. What's the problem? And Kennedy says, look, you started this crisis by sending the missiles to Cuba. All right. At the same time, Adley Stevenson's going to the U.N. Security Council and talking about that the U.S. ships have moved into position and Soviet you know, submarines are menacing the Caribbean. And we, you know, we're getting into a very tense situation here. On October 24th, for the first time, Khrushchev talks to the Soviet people and the Russians now know that there's this crisis going on. But they're told that it's a crisis between Cuba and the United States. So people reading Pravda are like, okay, there's this crisis between the United States and Cuba, but why are they so worried? Why are there talks about nuclear annihilation? This is just America fighting with Cuba again. They've been doing that for 150 years. Why is this suddenly? And they don't really get into that. So on October 24th, you could be in Moscow and everything is going on as usual. In New York City, people are panicking. There's food panic buying. There's people flooding out of the city. There's mass traffic as people try to escape New York in a complete panic. So you couldn't have more different situation between the two countries. Um, so this is how to think about now the idea that we could be on the same planet and have a different idea of yeah. a crisis like that. It's kind of fascinating. It is fascinating. Yeah. Before the internet, I mean, now, you know, we get a lot of misinformation, of course, but, yeah. but, 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 um, but yeah, you would at least have access to that information. So on October 25th, the Soviet freighters turned back and this is an interesting moment in this crisis, but the oil tanker, the Bucharest approaches the quarantine zone heading directly for Cuba. So they're testing the waters here and two American warships, the USS Essex and the USS Gehring, prepare to intercept it. And this could lead to a war. So the moment of truth is coming. And instead, Kennedy decides, let's let the Bucharest through the quarantine because they are not carrying any contraband that we know of anyway. Um, so they let them through because it's just about warships. Mm-hmm. All right, so on the 26th, Castro sends a letter to Khrushchev urging him to launch a nuclear first strike against the United States. So even at the time, we didn't know how tense it got. We didn't find out that about that until after the fall of the Soviet Union, when we got access to their files. And we're like, oh, my God, this was even worse than we thought. So but Khrushchev instead sends a letter to Kennedy saying, you know what, let's deescalate this conflict. Conflict, And so we ensure that we don't doom the world into a catastrophe of thermonuclear war. October 27th, though, U.S. U-2 pilot Major Rudolf Anderson is shot down and killed over Cuba. So the progress that they made on the 26th seems to be evaporating and war seems imminent again. But the Assistant Secretary of Defense, Paul Nietzsche, uh, said they fired the first shot and Kennedy remarks, we are now in an entirely different ball game. But calmer heads prevail. JFK concludes after discussions with his cabinet um, that we believe that Khrushchev did not order the shot of Anderson's plane. So he backs off this spiraling out of control event and he gives it another, another day to breathe. 
on the same day, Khrushchev sends a letter to Kennedy in which he demands that the United States withdraw missiles from Turkey as part of a deal. Mm -hmm. So JFK promises not to attack Cuba after the Russians withdraw. And that evening, JFK's brother, who played a big role in all this negotiating with with, um, with the president, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, meets with Soviet Ambassador Dubrinin and says that the United States is ready to move the missiles in, from Turkey, but don't say so publicly. So this is the breakthrough moment. And it's fascinating to me because um, what happens is Khrushchev concedes it. The whole, you know, the whole Cuban Missile Crisis comes to an end and it portrays Kennedy as sort of this victor of this great showdown when in reality it's just a great diplomatic solution that's fair to both sides. You are listening to Building Bridges. What most students learn about the United States and its interactions with neighboring states in the Western Hemisphere, like Cuba, like we just heard, uh, it's confined, though, primarily to things, at least in history classes, to like the building of the Panama Canal and the Spanish-American War. Um, We already elaborated on what a lot of the ramifications of the Spanish-American War are, Um, but it's kind of poorly understood to what extent we even still maintain this relationship with the Western Hemisphere, but throughout the 20th century where we were continuing to engage in ways that are a bit more subtle, but nevertheless very, very impactful on these countries. Um, So the United States is kind of presented as, in in history classes, as an imperial power that wasn't. Um, And frankly, that's exactly what American imperialists like Teddy Roosevelt want people to think. We don't like to think of the United States as an imperial power. And there were a lot of steps taken to avoid using the kind of language, the kind of formal policies that we would identify as imperialism in, say, Britain or France, where they're you know, directly acquiring countries, they're expanding, they're invading. Uh, we're, we're a bit more subtle about it. And that was very intentional. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that the Monroe Doctrine particularly with the uh, addition of the Roosevelt Corollary, it basically establishes the United States as a hegemony in the Western Hemisphere. In essence, the United States has a distinct home field advantage by the late 19th and 20th century. It's no longer really practical for other world powers to do much of anything in the Americas if the United States isn't on board. And that's not just a statement of policy. That's now kind of a logistical, technological reality. Um, So in many ways, the United States did not need to territorially expand into the Americas rather than how it's often presented, which is that essentially we chose not to, that's not really accurate. Um, It's really worth noting to that end that if you go beyond Latin America, nearly every territory granted to the United States at the end of the Spanish-American War, such as Guam and the Philippines, was formally brought under U.S. rule. So again, it's this idea that we don't really need to formally take over Latin American countries because we already have so much influence over them as it is. So this kind of quasi-imperial foreign policy, it persisted well into the 20th century. And much like in Cuba, it took on this new strategic quality as there were fears of the spread of communism and the Cold War really gets going in earnest. Um, And so the consequences of these Cold War interventions, they can still be felt to this day when dealing with countries, uh, particularly Venezuela is an example of a country that we still have a lot of hangover from these interactions with. Um, But in this instance, I wanted to take a closer look at two particular cases, and that's Nicaragua and El Salvador. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, growing up when I did, going to high school in the late 1970s and college in the early 80s, American foreign policy, it seemed like that was all we were concerned mm -hmm. about. You know, Of course, you had the Cold War, you know, and, and we were concerned with the Soviet Union. But on a day-to-day -day basis, it was all about the Sandinistas and some assassination, you know, Archbishop Romero being killed yeah. in El Salvador. And you had, so you had one communist country or, uh, and then one right-wing dictatorship mm -hmm. and they're sort of mirror images of each other. So could you tell us more about El Salvador and Nicaragua? How did they get to have such a central role in American foreign policy? Yeah, so there's kind of a shift here. After the Cuban Missile Crisis, when everything came to a head, um, the United States and the Soviet Union gradually tried to shift into more of a phase of what's called detente in the 70s in particular, where we're realizing, okay, you know, Vietnam spiraled out of control. There were a lot of threats associated with that. But just in general, some of these situations are becoming untenable because it keeps putting the United States and the Soviet Union into situations where they might actually have to come to, to actual physical, I mean, sorry, uh, to armed conflict, in which case it could escalate into nuclear war. So we're trying to kind of micromanage the spread of communism. We're still obeying the domino theory. We're still constantly trying to challenge communist regimes because we don't want to see communism spread, but it's trying to be more localized. And so that's where this comes into play. So El Salvador and Nicaragua are interconnected um, by a series of events in the 70s and 80s. They are neighbors, and so they're, what goes on in one is informing another directly, uh, not just because of their proximity, but because they have a lot of the same kind of geopolitical realities at play, in particular in their relationship with the United States. Um, but these relations, just like in Cuba, they stretch, stretch back well back. I mean, really, you go all the way to the beginning of the 20th century, we're interacting with El Salvador and Nicaragua as sovereign states um, but we're starting to develop our, our foreign policy of telling them what to do. Um, so like, like many Latin American states, the United States was actually one of the first to recognize um, the independence of these countries from Spain in the early 1800s. Mm -hmm. so it was that idea of you know, the fraternity of democracies. We're all in this together. We're all on the other side of the world, the European powers, all that, all that idea. But we'll see how that doesn't really pan out. Um, however, also, like a lot of Latin American countries, the United States was acutely involved in the economic development of both El Salvador and Nicaragua for the bulk of the 19th and 20th centuries. And American corporations, just like in Cuba, playing a huge role in supporting various dictatorial regimes and oligarchies that were going to come in and out of fashion in these countries throughout the decades, tied directly to their relationships with the United States and its corporate interests. Ironically, uh, this economic manipulation and this exploitation by the United States and all of the infringements that that represents on the sovereignty of these countries, uh, that's going to actually directly contribute to the rise of socialism and communism. Yes, the Soviet Union is exporting communist ideology around the world, and Cuba, of course, becomes a huge exporter of this ideology as well. But really, it's not hard to convince the people of this, these countries that the United States is exploiting them and supporting the people that are oppressing them. And so they're going to turn to socialism and communism as a direct uh, uh, opponent to this situation. Um, and so the resulting conflicts there are directly tied to the Cold War, and they really begin with Nicaragua. It's kind of the catalyst for revolution in both of these countries. So, and you do get supporters on both sides. I, you know, I remembered it was, they were sort of like, domestic issue debates, yet foreign policy, because there were people that really supported both sides. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 
you know, and there were stories that came back about, you know, when you have an archbishop assassinated while he's serving mass at the cathedral, it has an effect on people. You know, when nuns get, American nuns Mm -hmm. get taken and killed, it has an effect on our domestic opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, How does does that play? You know, I I know Jimmy Carter gets involved early, but Mm -hmm. then the Reagan really makes it a, a central issue to his foreign policy. How do we get to that point? I mean, in... Yeah. So since the construction of the Panama Canal, again, you really have to go back and that's the thing about history. You always have to uncover more things. There's always, there's always an impetus. There's always mm-hmm. a start for something else. So since the construction of the Panama Canal, the United States has actually maintained a military presence in Nicaragua. This was a permanent garrison that was there. And essentially they were there to make sure that whatever regime was in power, they didn't particularly care, um, that that regime would agree to uphold a treaty that the United States had imposed on Nicaragua after a formal conflict mm-hmm. um, in 1916. And that treaty prevented that uh, Nicaragua from allowing anyone but the United States to build canals within their territory. Mm-hmm. So this was not because the United States had any actual intention of building a canal. They built one in Panama. It was great. It all worked out. It was really expensive and took a really long time. They're not going to build another one. Uh, they did that specifically just so nobody else could, in particular Japan and Germany, uh, who at this point are nowhere near their World War II fascist governments. These are normal kind of imperial states at the time. Uh, They had already expressed an interest. And so the United States wanted to head that off at the pass. So the United States has this permanent garrison. They're constantly influencing what goes on in Nicaragua. And in 1926, a socialist by the name of Augusto Cesar Sandino, uh, he starts a guerrilla campaign against the U.S., and the pro-American regime. So he's at war with both. And this is not a question. He is formally fighting both of these these groups. Um, Eventually, however, he is assassinated by the leader of the Nicaraguan National Guard. And it's important to point out that the National Guard in Nicaragua at this time is not like the National Guard in the United States. The National Guard is, is in all practical purposes, a secret police force. Um, And they're led by um, Somoza Garcia, and once the the leader is assassinated, he then installs himself as a pro-U.S. dictator. <laughs> um, so killing Sandino, though, just makes him into a martyr for reformers and socialists across the country. And so the immediate effects of that strategic blunder are not going to become apparent until a while after, decades later, in fact. But it is going to have a profound effect on what happens. So fast-forwarding a bit. Uh, to 1978. This is really the pivotal year. Um, Dissent has been going on in Nicaragua for a long time. There have been calls for reform. They've gone largely unanswered. The people of the country are being victimized by the regime. Uh, But in 1978, it comes to a head when a group of young activists and revolutionaries that call themselves the Sandinista National Liberation Front, Mm -hmm. directly taking their name um, from Sandino, Sandinista in Spanish just means essentially Sandinoism is what that really translates to. Uh, They begin a full-fledged revolution and they go to war with the Somoza regime. Meanwhile, in neighboring El Salvador, this is going to inspire a bloodless military coup against the president, Carlos Romero. Um, So the Romero regime was responsible in El Salvador for extreme repression Uh, most infamously at the hands of an organization called the Orden, which in Spanish means order, uh, but it's a government-sponsored death squad. Uh, They imprison, execute, and they do – this is a common term when you look into the history of fascist regimes in particular in Latin America, but this idea of disappearing people. Mm -hmm. So one day they're there. 
One day, maybe they get picked up in a van or nobody knows what happens to them. You can never confirm that they're dead, but no one ever sees them again. Um, that's what happens. So lots of Salvadorans are uh, victimized by the regime, specifically through the Orden. Um, but the coup that takes place is not a revolutionary coup. It's actually a counter-revolutionary coup. So there are a group of young military officers who fear that a socialist regime is going to take control of the country based on what they're starting to see in Nicaragua, right. um, looking at the Sandinistas. And they actually think that Romero is not strong or harsh enough to stop that from happening. So they're going to launch this coup because they want to buckle down on these groups, not because they're supporting them, specifically right. not because they're supporting them. So the coup in El Salvador, it is bloodless. It essentially just puts the president into exile. Right. Um, and it establishes a military junta. Uh, which is just another word for like a cabal of military officers who get together and run the country. Um, so this military junta is put in place. But all of these people in this junta were trained by the CIA and the U.S. military. And after they are installed, they continue to be supported financially by the United States. So the justification for this, this idea that we're allowing a even more repressive regime to take over. Uh, the justification by both the Carter administration and the Reagan administration was to call it a, quote, reformist coup. Mm -hmm. And that's the same justification that they used to support the dictatorship in South Vietnam in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. um, so in response to this, there is a new group that comes to the surface. Uh, they are a leftist group. They're pro-socialist, pro-communist, and they're called the Farabundo Marti National Liberation Front, also known as the FMLN. FMLN hard to say in English. Mm -hmm. uh, but it establishes uh, itself to oppose the junta. And mind you, the junta is supported by the United States. So the United States is essentially funding the government to fight against its own people. And this leads to a civil war. Uh, that goes on from 1979 all the way up until 1992 and actually cost 75,000 lives uh, in addition to the 20,000 that were murdered by the regime's death squads. During the war, the, the regime was actually receiving about $1.5 million a day from the United mm -hmm. States. And by the 80s, U.S. military personnel were actually taking a direct role both in planning and carrying out the Civil War. So United States military officers yeah. – acting as United States military officers are fighting a civil war in a sovereign country during this time. Right. I, I, I know. It was just, it was hard to understand why it required this such, you know, such a commitment. And even as the Cold War itself is winding down, we're still fighting mm -hmm. you know, these people. In fact, it, you know, it's towards the end of the, the Reagan administration, you get the Iran-Contra scandal, mm -hmm. which comes out of this. And by then, Gorbachev has already loosened the reins. Yeah, the writing is on the wall. Yeah. Right? So tell us how we get to the Iran-Contra scandal. Sure. So one of the confusing things for people unfamiliar with the Iran-Contra affair uh, is that the name makes no direct mention of Nicaragua whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. um, but it is directly tied to Nicaragua. Yeah. So following the outbreak of revolution in Nicaragua um, – the U.S. opposed the Sandinistas, but it saw the Somoza regime as weak. It's kind of similar to what happened in El Salvador, where it's like we don't we don't want the leftist regime to take over, but we don't really have any confidence in the current rulers. So the United States withdraws its support for the Somoza regime because there's a lot of bad press about how repressive it is, what's going on, you know, during the, the nascent days of this revolution, uh, and it's just not worth the controversy. So they back off and they say, let's let's see what happens. Um, so a civil war also breaks out in Nicaragua, um, and the United States just takes a step back. 
So 30 to 50,000, the numbers are always wild like that in these situations because there's a lot of obfuscating of information. But anywhere from 30 to 50,000 are killed in the war itself, and 150,000 are exiled. Um, but ultimately, the Sandinistas do prevail, and they install a left-wing junta of their own that's led by Daniel Ortega. Um, they introduce numerous socialist policies to the country that are popular. So this includes things like land reform, literacy programs. Um, but inevitably, because of the situation in the country, how destable everything is, they wind up finding it necessary to employ their own secret police force, mm-hmm. um, which is going to go about repressing dissent, disappearing people, executions, the same problem, the same pattern that we fall into where these destabilized countries are taken over by people who are seizing power. Um, So the United States now sees the coin turning. It's like, oh, okay, so now the Sandinistas are the bad guys in the eyes of of the public or in the eyes of the world. We see this as an opportunity. So the United States starts providing direct aid to counter-revolutionary forces that call themselves colloquially the Contras. Contra in Spanish just means counter. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. So these are very extreme right-wing groups. These are groups that believe that socialism is a a disease that needs to be eradicated and they're willing to basically do whatever they need to to get the conservative and right forces back in charge of the country. Um, And so they wind up launching attacks against the regime, the Sandinista regime, and civilians who are seen as supporters of the regime as well, pretty brutally as, as it is going. So in 1983, there's a few years that have gone by where people are hearing more about both the Sandinistas and the Contras, and nobody really looks great. But because the United States is supporting the Contras, opposition to U.S. involvement starts to grow um, until by 1983 there's the Boland Amendment is passed, mm-hmm. which forbids direct aid being supplied to the Contras specifically. Um, and Representative Boland was a, a Democrat from Massachusetts, right? Mm-hmm, correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So – Obviously, there's always politics involved, but this really is being presented as the idea that the United States should not be in the business of supporting a group like this. It doesn't mean we support the Sandinistas, but it doesn't mean that we can support just anybody because they are opposing them. So Reagan administration doesn't like this because the Reagan administration's entire policy has been to find ways to fund the Contras. So this prompts the administration to devise a secret plan where they're going to continue funding the Contras. The plan was to sell weapons to Iran which was needed for a war that they were in with Iraq at the time. Um, Iran was under an arms embargo that actually stemmed from during the Carter administration, during the Iran hostage crisis. This was a carryover from that. So nobody's supposed to be, particularly the United States, but nobody's supposed to be selling arms to Iran, period. Right. Um, But this plan expressly is tied to that. So they're going to use – the idea is that they'll use the proceeds from those weapon sales to fund the Contras. So they're not using United States tax money. They're finding an alternate source of revenue that gets around this idea. Um, It's very sketchy though and they know this. Uh, But the Reagan administration justifies these arms sales kind of internally and eventually publicly by saying that they were providing weapons to so-called Iranian moderates – (laughs) who would help free some U.S. hostages that were held by um, Hezbollah in Lebanon at the time. Mm. However, in reality, these arms sales were actually authorized well before any of those hostages were taken. So Mm. this is kind of backtracking. Um, This is all deeply embroiled in Cold War strategy. 
Uh, because in addition to wanting to fund the anti-socialist Contras in Nicaragua, the Reagan administration determined that, yeah, we can say we're doing an arms embargo all we want on Iran, but they're going to get those weapons somehow. And their theory was if we don't provide them, then they're going to reach out to other people, which could include the Soviet Union, which might mean that Iran falls under the sphere of influence of the Soviet Union rather than being kind of this third-party state, which is where it was at the time. Um, so they don't want this to happen. Ultimately, though, the scandal is brought to light. Um, and for a while, things are not looking good for Reagan in all of this. But eventually, uh, presidential aide, security advisor, the now famous Lieutenant Colonel Ali North, uh, takes the blame. He says, no, it was my idea. I was involved directly with all of this. And he winds up resigning as sort of the sacrificial lamb for the Reagan administration. Ronald Reagan goes on TV. He makes a speech kind of explaining how, oh, this is all something of a misunderstanding. I didn't know that they were providing funding directly to the kind. You know, it, it's very circuitous, but Reagan essentially escapes from the ramifications of this. Um, did you? Yeah, but several people, high-level people, are convicted of crimes mm -hmm. and wind up receiving pardons. Another connection to today, <laughs> um, President H.W. Bush pardons all the Iran-Contra. Mm -hmm. In the end, they wind up all going free, even though there were several convictions. On yeah. And Ollie North got a television show. Yeah, so there Ollie you go. Um, but tying things to George H.W. Bush, um, so the Iran-Contra affair is not the end of our interference in Nicaragua, uh, yeah. but we have to change tactics. Um, so what winds up happening is that we launch an embargo against Nicaragua, and eventually under George H.W. Bush, so this is the first Bush administration, um, they figure out, well, we can fund an opposition candidate. So Nicaragua's political situation has calmed down a bit. Um, they are having elections that are not just for show. Um, and so they decide that they're going to provide funding to a candidate named uh, Violeta Camaro. Mm -hmm. And she's going to win the election in 1990. So this doesn't eliminate socialism in Nicaragua. They're still around. Um, but it is one of the first major political defeats for the Sandinistas since the revolution. And from that point on, our relations with Nicaragua have become more normalized. That, however, does not mean, as we've learned from looking at these examples, that everything is honky-dory. But it means that we are working collaboratively for whatever end that that might mean. Thank you for joining us for Building Bridges. I want to thank Dr. Dan Wallace and Sante Mastriano for joining us today. And as always, I'm Joe Garrity, host of Building Bridges. A special thanks to our editor, Daniel Pineda, and David Moran for our original theme music. This has been Building Bridges, a close-up teacher program production, and thank you for listening.